This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. I'm Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about a book called Origins of the Gods. More than a book, we're going down deep into some very new ideas about what the gods are and were, who we are as well, and where we actually came from. We're going to be talking this week to Andrew Collins, one of the authors of the book. Next week to Greg Little, the other author of the book, because it's such a huge story. We have got to take two full weeks to tell it. It is extraordinarily exciting. Andrew Collins has been on Dreamland many, many times. So has Greg Little, for that matter. We'll talk about that next week. But Andrew has been on for books like uh, uh, The Cygnus Mystery and his fabulous book about Gobekli Tepe. He's one of the greats when it comes to the archaeological mysteries of this world. His website is andrewcollins.com. You can find out where he's speaking, and he's going to be in the United States, I think, in September. He also takes tours to exotic sites in places like Turkey, places that you would really want to go to if you're deeply interested in this. But a warning, they sell out often a year in advance because he's real popular. So if you want to get on one of the tours, I would go to andrewcollins.com and do that right now. And now, without further ado, let's go ahead and go on to this week's edition of Dreamland. Origins of the Gods, an extraordinary new book by one of the great collaborations in the whole field of historical and modern interpretations of our lost past and what we mean right now as the human species. We're going to go to Kesem Cave. We're going to talk about Skinwalkers with Andrew Collins. Andrew's been on the show many times. He's been at the Skinwalker Ranch. We're going to talk about transdimensional intelligences and what they have to do with the formation of the human mind. And to do that with Andrew and then next week with Greg Little, We're going to start by going all the way back to what amounts to the beginning of human time, long before we even thought in previous years that human beings had anything like shamanism or magic or understood the world at all in any way. And yet they did. And yet they did. Andrew, can you begin telling us this wonderful story of Kesem Cave? Yeah, I mean, the Kesem Cave is in uh, just outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, it was discovered in the year 2000 um, when they were making a new highway. And the engineering um, company, you know, were breaking through rocks, you know, with explosives. And suddenly they revealed this incredible cave. Uh, which hadn't been open for 200,000 years. And amongst the debris were thousands of stone tools and bones of animals. Um, and it was quite clear that this had been a place of habitation. And it turns out that it originally started to be occupied 
as early as 420,000 years ago and continued on down to 200,000 years ago. Now, this in archaeological terms is what's known as the Lower Paleolithic. And a, a number of reports have come out to do with the cave, which I was aware of. But in 2019, um, I dropped everything when I read a particular um, you know, news report coming out of there uh, relating supposedly to the discover of the earliest ever evidence of shamanism in the world. And this took the form of a wing bone of a swan, um, which is universally used um, not only in the European um, and Asian continent, but also in the Americas as a method of flight by shamans. In other words, you know, they would, after the bird was dead, they would collect up the bones, particularly of the wings, which were seen as the most powerful and the ones that could achieve shamanic flight and use them as paraphernalia. And here at the Kevin Kazem cave was a, a swan bone that had very deliberately had its, um, it, its feathers removed. It had very deliberately been cleaned and was actually found in an area of the cave that was considered to almost like be like a holy of holies. There were other artifacts in it, which seemed to back that up. And the archaeologists uh, involved there, uh, particularly um, Aram Bakai uh, of the University of Tel Aviv, um, wrote a paper, and this was reported. And because obviously we were dealing with swans here, and as most of your uh, viewers will know, that, you know, I've written whole books on the cosmology surrounding the swan as yes. our primary shamanism um, and the cosmological um, point in the sky that enters into the afterlife or the sky world or whatever. You know, I just had to go. So I dropped everything and I went out to uh, Israel and um, I spent a few days with the archaeologists um, looking at the cave, looking over all the artefacts. And going over, particularly with Rambakai, exactly what they believed had happened here as much as 400,000 years ago. And, you know, the, the shamanism was there. I mean, this goes back, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of years earlier than we assumed people had shamanism. But beyond that, the people in the Kesem cave were becoming the smartest people in, on the planet at this time. Now, what I mean by that is that they were making inventions that nobody else was doing. I mean, for instance, they had the first canned food in the sense that they would kill deer, chop the leg and wrap it in a certain way that would allow them to keep the the the, the nutritious um, marrow inside the bone for several weeks. So they could just wrap it up in a particular manner, throw it in their backpacks or whatever they had and then go off on their hunts and, and have them. They had the first um freed freeze fried fruit food um in the sense that they would be able to um you know cut meat and wrap it in um ash in a certain way that could preserve it over 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 a particular period of time they also had the first production line of stone tools known as blades um now previous to this time a few blades had been found in africa but this was a complete production line plus they had a school of rock uh, as was described in the newspapers, what this was is that the cave, different parts of the cave were used to train pupils um, in the methods of um, stone napping and, uh, you know, different types of ones. 
um, they were the first people to use fire in a very sustained way within a, a single fire pit across tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And there were many other things like this, which, although might not seem a lot to, to many people, you know, said that these people were pulling, a, you know, advance of their neighbours, not, not just locally in the Levant, um, you know, in the eastern Mediterranean, but in other parts of the world in a dramatic fashion. So the fact that they were also inventing shamanism at the same time where you enter into other worldly realms to communicate with the other worldly intelligences that, you know, then give you information that you can bring back into the material existence was just too much of a coincidence. And so I felt that what was happening is that these people were connecting with some kind of higher intelligence or what they perceived of it. I mean, how they saw it is a, a matter of, of you know, of interpretation um, and discussion. But Rambakai believes that it would have, they would have seen these otherworldly uh, beings as not just the ancestors of their own tribes, but also probably of the spirits of the animals that had been killed on the, uh, on the hunt. So in other words, it was a little bit like a, entering into a sort of jungle book like environment of, you know, Rajar Kipling, you know, that all the animals could talk, you know, and right. talk to the humans. And this is the realm that they believe coexisted with us, but was in, normally invisible. And so that they were gaining information that was allowing them to, to pull ahead of any of their neighbours. But it wasn't as simple as this, because if once you go to Kesenkai, you'll see that on the horizon, a long way away, is a mountain, an incredibly important mountain in the early um, books of the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis. Yeah, I, yeah I'd, like, I'd like to get to that in a few minutes. Okay. Um, and, but right now, free Dreamlanders, I have good news and even more good news. And if you believe that, then watch these commercials very carefully. Did we misunderstand the teaching of Jesus, perhaps a long time ago, perhaps almost as soon as he rose from the dead? We mistook him for something that he may not have been, but we do know one thing, he was one of us. His life and his resurrection Reveal the power of the good in all of us. And his teaching shows anybody, whether they have religious beliefs or not, how to find that goodness and live it. Get Jesus a New Vision. It's available as an audiobook. It is available as a paperback and as a Kindle. Get it today. UnknownCountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information. Listen to what Dr. Robert Schock said. He's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age 
in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now. Click on the subscribe tab. Get started. So what you're saying is that the cave, that what was happening in the cave is reflected, the, 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 the significance of the mountain goes back not just a few thousand years to biblical times or to the, to the, uh, uh, to the nine to 10,000 years ago that we know that that world was was settled by people who have some kind of a modern vision of reality, but much, much farther, much farther, 300,000 years. And you're talking about not speculative archaeology. This has been dated using the best conventional techniques there are. So, uh, you know, I have to ask you, who were these people? Were they even people? Were they were they Neanderthals or Homo erectus? What were they? Well, it, what's, the, what's interesting uh, here is that we are actually dealing with our own earliest ancestors, and I mean Homo sapiens, because the Kesem cave people, um, the, the 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 teeth that they left behind inside the cave, are essentially no different to those of modern humans anatomical humans um so they're our ancestors they were not denisovans they were not neanderthals they were not homo erectus homo erectus um had by this time left the levant they were in other parts of the world um and it does seem as if the kesem cave people revered um the former presence in the area of homo erectus but that they were our ancestors and i think that this is really really important that they were the ones that were in, that were inventing shamanism as much as 400,000 years ago. But as I said, on the horizon, there is a mountain, a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And we don't know much about this because, you know, when you think of the Bible and you think of holy mountains, you think of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But it's a fact that Jerusalem doesn't really make a, an appearance in the Old Testament until much, much later not until the time of uh, David and Solomon, of course. And of course, um, you know, they, the, 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 the Hebrew Bible, which was obviously written by the, 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 the Judaic peoples, um, favours Jerusalem and Mount Zion above any other mountain as being important to God. But Mount Gerizim was the original mountain of God. It was the original gateway to heaven, according to the early accounts. And what's so, in, what's so incredible about it is that it was here that the early patriarchs like um, Abraham and Jacob 
experienced, um, you know, Yahweh or, you know, the, the God of the Israelites as he simply was back then uh, in the form of manifesting light. And in fact, it's said that the way that God would appear on Mount Gerizim is as his form of the Shekinah. And the Shekinah is a word uh, meaning presence, as in the presence of God. But usually it refers to a, a blight, a, a, you know, like a bright, blinding light that's seen and considered to be the presence of God himself. And of course, it's this same light that's seen by Moses on Mount Sinai and also on Mount Horeb as a flaming bush. Uh, but also it's the same term is used for the light that appears above the Ark of the Covenant. So we're talking about some kind of manifestation of light. And once I started looking into Mount Gerizim, I found that both historically and in modern times, it's been associated with what we call UFOs, UAPs, you know, mysterious lights. And I began to wonder whether the Kezem people may have been interested in this mountain because of these mysterious lights that were appearing and that they interpreted them in terms of some kind of, you know, localised mountain god, because ultimately that's what God of the Israelites was, a mountain god um, that was based on much earlier Canaanite tradition of gods such as El or Baal, who were said to inhabit the tops of mountains. Uh, and in some cases, even live in tents, apparently, upon the tops of mountains. But so I wanted to know more. So I, at the same time that as I went out to the Kezem cave, um, I also crossed over from Israel into the Palestinian territories of the West Bank um, and climbed Mount Gerizim. And at the top of it, there is a religious community that's been there for thousands of years um, known as the Samaritans, and they claim to be the true inheritors of the Israelite faith. And so I sought out the highest ranking priest I could find. And I said to him, I said, you know, I understand that mysterious lights, uh, you know, appear on this mountain. I said, do they still appear today? He said, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and he described them. And I said, how, how do you interpret them? And the word that was used was malach which is a Semitic term for um, for angels. So in other words, you know, what we might call UFOs or UAPs today, um, he and his community, the Samaritans, were still seeing them as the manifestations of messengers of God, angels. And I find this quite incredible, you know, that it almost takes us back to you know, biblical times in the way that they perceive what's going on. But then we look at the Kezem people again. You know, can we dare to suggest that the Kezem people may also have been seeing the same types of light phenomena? Well, the one thing that we can say about Mount Gerizim is that it has very intense geology of the salt, which has come to be associated with the manifestation of lights. And I'm talking about the coming together of tectonic plates, underground, you know, faults. Um, fault lines and also particular types of mineral and these seem to be associated with the manifestation of lights and there are um, ways that we can explain this which we can perhaps go into but the same conditions would unqu unquestionably have been there 400,000 years ago 
And I believe that the Kesem people were being attracted to that mountain because of the light phenomena, because of the objects that were seen. And that because of this, they believe, they came to believe that the mountain was some kind of entity, um, you know, or a god as we would call it today. And that they wanted to connect with it, to connect with the intelligence associated with it through altered states of consciousness and shamanism. But the other important factor is that we know that the Kezem people were making journeys from the, from the cave all the way to this mountain to actually collect the flint, a particular type of flint to make their stone tools. And this was despite the fact that, that, you know, good quality flint was available quite close to the cave, which they could equally have used. So was it possible that they saw the stones, the rocks connected with the mountain as imbued with a certain power that would allow them to more easily connect with this entity or deity of the mountain? We're going to take another pause right now for our free dreamlanders. Uh, we'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Unknowncountry.com. It's huge. It's much more than just a Whitley-Strieber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds. My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago. Whitley Strieber Audiobooks, Communion, Transformation, The Secret School, Breakthrough, Majestic, and so much more powerful meditations. But more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real. 
and it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way. This is what being a member of Unknown Country is about. So go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today. Join us and join, very frankly, the future. I am thinking in terms of, you know, I've, I've been out to, in fact, you mentioned this in the book, to Marfa, Texas when I was a boy. I used to drive out there with, it was a long drive from San Antonio, an ideal thing to do with a girl you liked. And we used to go out to the Marfa Lights and to watch them. And, you know, there were no, there's a big viewing area now, but there was nothing like that then. And they weren't car lights or anything like that that they claim now. Uh, I knew a scientist, William Mallow, who said that they were a piezoelectric effect uh, coming out of the ground. And you would see them, but they didn't. They had a almost a lifelike quality to them. And if, Some people, if you called them, they would come closer. And then you'd talk to them, and they'd go back again. They were very... It was really a very weird thing that sort of seemed explainable, but at the same time kind of didn't. And is that what they were seeing, do you suppose, the same sort of thing? Uh, yeah, almost certainly. But I mean, obviously, when I think of the Martha lights, I think of, you know, small objects, um, you know, bright, intense light seen, as you say, either at distance or, you know, close up. But ultimately, we're dealing with objects that... You know, the term that, that was used there was piezoelectric. Um, and piezoelectricity is definitely a factor, I think, in creating the correct environment for the manifestations of, you know, UAPs, UFOs, mysterious lights down here on Earth. And I'll tell you for why. Um, because, I mean, it was recognized as early as the 1940s and 50s uh, by, you know, contactees and early UFO writers such as George Hunt Williamson, that there was some kind of relationship between the manifestation of UFOs and geomagnetic fields. In other words, places on Earth that seem to have a particular anomaly connected with magnetism. Now, what's actually going on at such places is that the geology is creating variations in, in magnetic fields. That in itself is not necessarily going to do much more than perhaps have an effect upon the human bodily system, perhaps upon the mind or whatever. It's not going to you know, uh, create the manifestation of UFOs. That requires more intense geology. And what I mean by that is that um, back in the late 70s and early 80s, um, researchers like Michael Persinger, the Canadian neuroscientist, um, and also Paul Devereaux, who was at the time the editor of a magazine called The Lay Hunter, both worked out that particular types of geology were important and were found again and again in association with the, with the manifestation of lights and UFOs and whatever. And these involved tectonic plates and the movement of them uh, underground fault lines, certain minerals in particular, like quartz and uh, tourmaline in particular, which can, when bent, produce 
free electrons. In other words, the atoms will release their electrons and these will then um, raise out of the ground and create environments which are known as uh, electron bursts or ionospheric environments. This is the, the scientific term. And they are accepted to be able to produce something known as plasma. Plasma is the full state of matter. Um, we obviously know about solid, which is the first state, liquids, which is the second state, third state is gases. Well, beyond that is what's known as ionized gas, although that's a terrible term because it's not gas at all. But what is known as plasma and plasma essentially is where these electrons break free from atoms and they get so excited that they hit other atoms that release their electrons which get excited and it's a chain reaction and as this is happening they create these electromagnetic fields around them because what they're in doing here is generating electricity and when these become so excited they they release photons tiny packets or particles of light that at a certain point will burst into existence and you know, almost like a light bulb being switched on and in front of you will be a object of light. Um, now, this is known as a plasmoid or a plasma construct. And I think that there is a very strong relationship between these plasmoids or plasma constructs and the manifestation of most UFOs. And I'm saying most here because most genuine UFO sightings do start with an object of light or a, a cluster of lights or whatever. I mean, other things can happen thereafter. Maybe physical structured craft can occur. But, you know, we're dealing initially with the presence of this light. And this light is the byproduct of the presence of plasma. And plasma is incredibly important because not only does it show sentience, and this is something that's been recognized for a long time, but it connects, therefore, with what you said earlier about the Martha lights, that they themselves would also seem to act in an intelligent manner. In other words, we are dealing with an intelligence that is able to use plasma as a conduit to manifest into our reality. It's a very interesting point because you, you mentioned in the book uh, the church of uh, uh, St. Mary... Uh, of St. Mary and Zaytun in Egypt and the manifestations that appeared above that church in the 1960s and 70s. I know or knew he's passed on someone who saw that and he said it was a, it looked like a, a figure like shaped like a statue of the Virgin Mary with its arms opened. He saw that with his own eyes and so what was going on there? Uh, was well, this, in other words, this? What I'm saying is this: this plasma, whatever yeah. this energy is, it seems to be capable of leaving areas yeah. like Marfa and the the, the mountains, etc., and so forth, and showing up in other places from time to yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, firstly, obviously, we're, we're dealing with a phenomenon that's worldwide. It's not simply in one country or one location, and there are particular places which have we've, we've described here where these manifestation of 
objects, I mean, they're not just light, but they're objects, um, will occur on a regular basis. Now, that is probably connected with geology, but that's not the only way that they can manifest because obviously they can manifest up in the upper atmosphere within the ionosphere, for instance, which is an ionised environment right for the creation of plasmoids or plasma constructs, which in many ways would explain why a large number of UFOs are seen to actually come down from space because they are being uh, created within the the ionosphere and are, are becoming buoyant and sentient in their own right to the degree that they have this intelligent action. They can quite literally act in a manner which we perceive as that which which we want, whether we want to see it in terms of, you know, alien greys coming down or whether we want to see it in terms of the Virgin Mary putting in an appearance or the fairies of medieval folklore, um, you know, or Jesus Christ himself manifesting in front of us. You know, the important key here is not simply the phenomena, but the way it interacts with human consciousness, because it would seem as if some kind of entangled connection uh, can be created very easily between us and that phenomena. You know, I mean, our whole bodily system is made up of electrons. I mean, perhaps 99.9% of everything that, that, that is, you know, the, the human body is just a load of electrons doing their own thing, you know, not just within the, the, the nervous system or the brain, but in every part of the body. And those same electrons, those exact same particles are making up these objects. And what is known as quantum entanglement, which is the way that um, subatomic particles, most obviously electrons or photons, can become twinned, interconnected, and that no matter how far away they get from each other thereafter, they will still retain an instantaneous connection between themselves is something which creates entangled systems of particles which right. have been known to exist and exert an influence on a microcosmic level for many years. Um, but it's only been recently, within the past, say, 10 years, that we've started to realise that entanglement worked on a macrocosmic level as well. In other words, in the real world. Yeah. So, you in know, the, the idea... In the, in, the, in the world where activity takes place. Yeah. But it's yeah, all the real words, world. So in now, other words, sorry. Well, um, it occurs to me that what you may also be talking about is a control mechanism because if this level of entanglement is out there, or in here, I should say, what is to prevent someone from exploiting it who knows has known about it for thousands of years? And in other words, they may be able to to control a lot of things about us using this type of entanglement as a form of communication. You, you mentioned Dr. Persinger, whose work I'm very familiar with, and I have a friend who uh, was uh, studied by him for years because this individual is, a, uh, is psychokinetic. Now, uh, he... he could create states in a person using essentially electro, uh, electromagnetic energy delivered through 
headsets that he designed uh, to put on their heads. What if someone using quantum entanglement could not just do this at a distance, but from anywhere in this universe? Well, th- th- this, this is what, you know, Greg and I are saying in, in, in this book, that, you know, we could well be dealing with intelligences that are non-terrestrial in the sense that, you know, they are from the outside, you know, outside of normal space time that are able to manipulate plasma environments um, and perhaps even the environment in general um, to be able to affect human consciousness, particularly when we're in altered states of consciousness, particularly when we're in what might be described as trance states or dream states or indeed um, shamanic states, induced states, that they can communicate with us. But the, the initial connection with this phenomena probably comes by linking with objects like we're talking about associated with Mount Gerizim or Skinwalker Ranch or Martha in Texas or indeed any similar location around the world. And let's just, before we go any further, I think it's important to point out to your viewers here that we're not saying that this explains every UFO or every alien sighting or every alien abduction. We're not at all. You know, I mean, as far back as 1963, Carl Sagan wrote a paper in which he concluded that the Earth had been visited, you know, countless times by extraterrestrials across the course of human history. Um, and the, the, the paper was essentially buried because afterwards he started working with NASA. And they basically said, look, you know, uh, look, Carl, you're going to have to drop all this, you know, alien stuff and UFOs because, you know, it's going to give NASA a bad name. And he did. I mean, and I've heard this, you know, from somebody who was a very close friend of his. Um, and he had to drop the whole thing almost to the point of being negative towards the subject and focus his attention on other areas like writing his book Contact, which is an incredible book, incredible film. Um, and obviously, you know, focusing on things like the Arecibo message and whatever. So if Carl Sagan says that Aliens have been here many, many times. I have no problem with that concept. And I think there's a good chance that they're still visiting us today. But I think that there's something else going on, something that may even be bigger than the idea of flesh and blood aliens coming to this planet. Something that's been with us, not just for the past, you know, 70, 80 years of the flying saucer era, but thousands, if not millions of years. It's always been with humanity it's always been there guiding us connecting with us feeding us drip feeding us information when it needs to communicating with us through direct encounters uh, like those that may have taken place at Mount Gerizim in connection with the Kezem cave people or indeed the early Israelite patriarchs um, or obviously in more modern times with what we call UFO encounters Um, I think that all of these things are essentially the same. I mean, as you know yourself, you know, from your own experiences, many different people that have very close encounters with the phenomena become incredibly creative afterwards. They become artists, they become writers, they become poets, they become musicians. And that, you know, this sets them on a new path in life. And I think that the same thing was going on 
as early as the Kazem people were encountering this phenomena as much as 400,000 years ago. And it's for this reason, not only they invented shamanism, but they also pulled ahead of their neighbors in every way. Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a break. The good news is it's the last break. The bad news is it's going to be extremely long. I'm kidding. It's, it's going to be just like the other breaks. We'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. The UNX Network delivers quality paranormal programming, video and audio streams, all kinds of shows. Jimmy Church is there. Dreamland is there in the free version. So go to unexnetwork.com and you'll receive your monthly newsletter, blog access, event notices, and a free digital copy of their quarterly magazine. How can you go wrong? Check it out, unxnetwork.com. So you're saying then that this, whatever it is, is it that, well, let me, let me rephrase this. Is it that these people, because of what was essentially a new thing on planet Earth, which was their brains, they were different from the Denisovans and uh, the Neanderthals in very many respects. Is it that they noticed and began to try to interpret these phenomena? Or did the phenomena somehow create them? Or what exactly was going on there? Well, um, I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, there's probably a case of fascination. I mean, if you are out on your hunt and you suddenly keep seeing these weird lights in the same place, uh, eventually you're going to be inquisitive, inquisitive enough to start investigating them. So let's say it's on a mountain. You're going to go to that mountain. You know, you may find that the lights start to play with you, just like you described at Martha in Texas. You may suddenly find that there's a large one very close to you and it's having some kind of effect upon your body, on your mind. It's creating a dreamlike state. Um, it's starting to talk to you. You know, it's starting to respond to you. And, you know, quite clearly, this would be seen as an incredibly profound experience that would be taken back, you know, to the community. And you'd describe it. And obviously, probably some of your colleagues would say, oh, this is dangerous. The others would say, well, you know, what happens next? You know, go back and try again. And there would probably be a certain amount of fear involved. The chances are that they would probably have 
made offerings to it. You know, these could have been sacrifices of some description. But in return, they believed that they could get some kind of otherworldly knowledge that would advance them. And that this is how this this symbiotic relationship with the phenomena began. But I think that it's something that may have started unconsciously even earlier than this, because, you know, what I describe in the book is going back two million years into Africa on the Great Rift Valley of places like Tanzania, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, um, where you have the most intense geology in the world in the Great Rift. And yet here, not only around 1.75 million years ago, you get the invention of sustained fire, but also the people suddenly start changing the way that they make stone tools from just picking up pebbles and just smashing them and creating something sharp that they can use, that all of a sudden they start creating these most incredible, beautiful stone axes like this, which are known as the Acheulean hand axe. And these are the earliest form of hand axes created anywhere in the world. And many of them are multifaceted, almost looking like crystals or jewels. And the fact that the make it, the manufacturing of those corresponds with um, the first, you know, making of fire, to me, again, is too coincidental. And I think this is what happened. I think that when they created those fires inside the caves, they put on all sorts of plants, you know, just simply to keep it burning. But then occasionally they would find themselves drifting into what we would describe as a shifted state of consciousness. And eventually they would realize that it was particular types of plants that were doing this. And they would then purposely put those plants on a fire. And it was at this point that they would enter for the first time these otherworldly environments that they would see as coexisting with us, you know, on an invisible level, but that could be entered not just in altered states, but of course in dreams as well. And that when this happened, communication started occurring and they also started seeing beautiful shapes and colours and crystalline geometric forms. And they started to translate these into the creation of these beautiful stone tools that I've just shown you. And I think this is exactly what occurred. And this was the beginning of the understanding that they coexisted with us, this parallel realms that could be entered using altered states of consciousness and eventually that you could get people, which we now call shamans, to do this on your behalf. In other words, a particular community would have one or more individuals that would be able to enter into these deep states, communicate with these intelligences and bring that information back. And this was fully realised at places like the Kezen Cave in what is today Israel. But of course, this is just the beginning. After this, you do have the Denisovans, the, the Neanderthals and our own Homo sapien ancestors who are all, you know, getting on the bandwagon doing this and communicating with these other worldly intelligences and associating them with the manifestation of what we would today call UFOs at different locations, particularly things like holy mountains, or certain places that where this phenomena would occur again and again. Not just lights, but also paranormal activity, the appearance of what are today known as cryptids, 
um, and also that the people would have transformative experiences. In other words, when they went into the area, they'd have visions. They, you know, they would have these states of mind that would change them profoundly. And, you know, there are many places like this around the world. I mean, places like Mount Shasta in California, um, Mount Taishan in uh, um, in China, which I describe in the book, Mount Athos in Greece. Um, all of these places and many, many more are known for the manifestation of mysterious lights on a, on a, uh, a regular basis and have all influenced the religious um, beliefs and practices associated with those particular areas. Now, in the second and third half hour of the show, we're going to revisit uh, that mountain in China and also revisit some other very profound ideas. But right now, uh, where I would like to go is all the way back to the early days and I want to relate this to shamanism as it is now and has been for at least the past 10,000 years and probably longer. You become a shaman by, by experiencing death in one way or another. Uh, I, I, my experience was that the close encounter experience, which completely overturned my world. It was initiatory. And afterwards, I did end up with strange powers. My wife uh, was one of many shamans that this that the medical community is creating by bringing people back from the dead after they've had uh, a, a, an experience of the afterlife. Uh, and she became a shaman because she was, in effect, initiated by the doctor's who brought her back from the edge of death. Elizabeth Crone, who's been on Dreamland many times, four or five, three or four times, also uh, was a, um, she was struck by lightning, like Danny and Brinkley, and came back completely changed. So this is all leads up to this question. Uh, do we have any evidence that the people of the cave 300,000 years ago, or 200,000 years ago, were being initiated? And if so, could that have something to do with the swan wing bones that are found? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't know what was going on there exactly 400 years ago. You know, I, I tried to create um, a artist's impression of the interior of the cave, showing, you know, what I called the first shaman with these, you know, individuals in the background doing some kind of stomp or... Um, you know, chant at the same time, the shaman having in front of him um, you, not just uh, a fire where plants were going on, but also they were using these these balls, these handheld balls that are multifaceted. Um, they're either made of limestone or there's one in particular which was also found in the Holy of Holies there, uh, which was made of flint and I think was very special. And these were being used as points of contact for otherworldly experiences and communication with otherworldly entities. And this is not simply me saying this. This was this is what Rambakai, you know, the archaeologist of, of Tel Aviv University, told me that he believed that they were being used for. Why, um, why, did, that, he, why did he believe that? Well, because he was not happy with the 
the orthodox solution to what they were used for, which was essentially just getting them and bashing them on the bones of animals simply to get out the marrow from them. Um, yes, you know, some people may have just picked one up and used them occasionally for that purpose, but he felt very strongly that they were being used as points of contact for otherworldly experiences. And what's so interesting about them is that they're the same size as a crystal ball. And, you know, as I put in the book, you know, it's almost as if these are the earliest crystal balls anywhere in the world and that they were being used for exactly the same reason as we use them today. Communication with otherworldly intelligences to get otherworldly information, you know, whether it be on future events, whether it be on, you know, uh, new ideas and innovations or whether it be to spy on somebody or whatever it was, you know, or maybe even to see the animals on the hunt in the past. I mean, you know, it would seem as if they were doing exactly the same thing as we are today with crystal balls. And so, you know, they were clearly focused on this whole idea of otherworldly communication. And this is what the archaeologists do accept out there. I mean, they're very forward thinking. I mean, you will not get, for instance, most archaeologists in Britain or Germany or whatever thinking the same way. They just have not got that type of, of brain mentality to come up with these ideas. They shun away from the concept of, of ritualistic practices and shamanism. That's what I've certainly found in my experience. And I'm not trying to put anybody down here. I just want to point out that they have the a, there they have, are incredibly forward thinking. They have a, a culture of that is very, very Eurocentric and very uh, oriented toward the physical world. In other words, they, they don't want to see it in, in, in archaeologists are not cultural anthropologists. Let's put it that way. And so they're not the right people to, to deal with that. And unfortunately, there's no, there's no, such thing as a paleo anthropologist there, there may be i don't know but they certainly don't have a very loud voice if they are if they do exist and i've always thought that we probably do now at least have enough information to really apply some genuine anthropology to these ancient cultures and uh reconstruct them more like a cultural anthropologist Looking at things like the uh, like the wing bones of the swans and the, that whole, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because you know, folks, let me explain the swan to you a little bit. The swan is an extraordinary animal. The swan flies beautifully. The swans have been seeing fl seen flying at ten thousand feet and more. So. There was a specific, I think, reason that these people collected swans. They collected, they, they wanted to ascend, to fly. Now we go forward to Egypt and we have a whole highly developed culture involving skyboats and attempts to fly back to return to the stars. And if you look at the places like the pyramid text and the pyramid of Eunice, it's a, it's a long set of instructions about how the Pharaoh should go about returning to the stars. 
So I want to sort of make a leap ahead, Andrew, and ask you a question about this. Is there a connection, a long-term connection, that goes from the wings of the swans in that cave to the reverence for Cygnus, the, the constellation of the swan, that appears in Egyptian mythology? Um, yes, there is, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, 400,000 years is, is a long time. Um, but the fact is, you have to say to yourself, that the sole bird that they seem to have been focusing on, other than a, a little bit of evidence, they may have also been interested in, in ravens and, you know, corvoi, basically, um, is that they chose the swan as a vehicle to cross from the material world into the other world. And what I mean by that is that the shamans would have believed that they had to adopt some kind of um, animalistic form to make that transition. And they chose the swan. Why would they have chosen the swan? Well, a lot of it has to do with how powerful it is, as you said. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful animal and its flights, you know, with those, those wings would have been seen as having incredible strength to be able to do that. And that that same strength could be used by the shaman to go in an altered state into another world. But in addition to that, they would have seen, as you said, the swans on their journeys um, going to the north um, at the times of, um, of, of the, you know, the, the summer periods and obviously the winter periods, they would have come south and they would have seen them flying over and they would have known that they are symbols of transition from one place to another. I mean, they would have been very much aware of that. And these same ideas would have been carried forward, I think, many, many hundreds of thousands of years. Um, I mean, the, the Neanderthals would eventually adopt the vulture, for instance, and also it would seem probably corvoi, you know, like ravens and crows, as symbols of shamanism. Uh, we don't know so much about the Denisovans yet um, because, you know, we just haven't got enough material on them, although there does seem to be some evidence they were into shamanism. But beyond that is that eventually you start to get a universal belief that by adopting a form of a bird, now whether it be a swan, whether it be a hawk, as in Egypt, a goose, whether it be a vulture, as in places like southeast Turkey, Gebekli Tepe and Armenia, uh, whether it be as a bird of paradise in um, in the Pacific, etc., etc., that these could be used to transition from the material world into the afterlife. And the places of the afterlife were often seen to be in the sky, and in particular in association with the Milky Way. And there's a place on the Milky Way where it splits into two separate streams, and this is in the vicinity of the stars of the constellation of Cygnus, the celestial bird or celestial swan. And this particular location was universally seen in both the old and the new world as a point of entry into the afterlife. And that a journey along the Milky Way was necessary, whether it, whether it's seen symbolically or otherwise, to reach that point where you could make that crossover, you could cross that bridge, cross that gateway into the otherworldly environment that would be seen in the afterlife. 
And that's in Egypt. It's in North American cultures. Um, it's in Britain, for instance, in the alignment of many stone circles and other monuments of that type. Um, so, yeah, these ideas that you adopted the form of a bird, um, particularly the swan, has been carried forward for 400,000 years and came to be associated with cosmology and particular locations in the sky. And essentially, you know, the Cygnus constellation, which is otherwise known as the Northern Cross. Um, and I mean, you know, there's more reasons why Cygnus is important to do with the fact that it was um, that its stars occupied the pole star, the celestial pole for many thousands of years, around 15, 16,000 B.C., but also there are many stellar objects within it that could have been important, um, could have affected human consciousness, human evolution, like Cygnus X1, Cygnus X3, um, and you know other objects like the, the radio um, object uh, Cygnus A. And, I mean, Michael Persinger, for instance, talked about, uh, I think it was Cygnus A, and the radio bursts coming from that in the 1960s may have influenced things like earthquakes and other kinds of earth movements that occurred around the same time. I mean, he puts this in his key book, which came out in 1978, called um, Space-Time Transients and Other Unusual Phenomena, which is an incredible book, really, really important book. Yeah, I know um, I've read the book more than once. It's Yeah, I mean, so, you know, this idea of Cygnus being important it is, but it's on many levels. But the interest in its symbol, the swan, and of course that's what Cygnus means, it means the swan, goes back all the way to the Kesem K 400,000 years ago. Now, I have to ask the question, why would they choose that particular... I can understand the choice of the bird, although I can think of others like the eagle... Uh, for example, uh, 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 or even the goose, which also flies very beautifully and dramatically, although it's not as beautiful a bird uh, and as uh, eerie in a way as the swan with its strange voice. Uh, and in Egypt, Egyptian mythology, there's very little mention of the swan. Uh, it's much more the crane, and which is, uh, of course, the... It, it, it figures prominently in many hieroglyphs as well. But did they, what is something from, well, no, let, let me, let me, let me rephrase this question. See if I can just get this perfect question out. Uh, so we have to ask the question, why out of all the constellations did they pick Cygnus? What was its significance even 300,000 years ago? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer. I don't know whether the people of, let's say, you know, the Kezen Cave would have been looking up into the sky and thinking, you know, that's a very interesting constellation. They may have been. Um, they certainly would have been aware that it was on the Milky Way. Um, they certainly would have been aware that the Milky Way split uh, in the vicinity of the Cygnus constellation. And of course, Cygnus means swan. But the chances are that one of the important times that Cygnus becomes significant is when its stars, one after the other, occupy the position of the northern celestial pole. And 
this means that they become pulse stars for a period of a few thousand years. So in other words, you would be able to look at Cygnus as almost like the, the, the nose cone of a giant, um, you know, aircraft propeller going round and around with the actual propeller itself being the Milky Way. And it would just spin every night. And at least once every night, it would line up exactly north-south and go directly over the head towards the south. And the, 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 the turning point of that would have been the Cygnus stars, particularly the bright star Deneb, which is, you know, the main star uh, in the, the group. Now, that is uh, one of the reasons. Plus, there are deep objects, deep stellar objects in Cygnus that may also have had an influence, including Cygnus X3, that is one of the only sources out there that may well have been the the, the place where cosmic rays uh, have come from and have come directly towards the Earth. What I mean by that is that they're not affected um, by any kind of um, you know magnetic fields of the sun or the Earth or the solar system in general. They seem to come directly from source and are able to not just penetrate the atmosphere on Earth, but also penetrate the ground itself, the rock, going down hundreds of yards before finally breaking up. Now, if you can imagine our ancestors being in caves, let's say maybe painting or doing shamanic experiences or something, and would they have been aware of these cosmic particles? Well, the, the actual answer to that is yes, they would. Because what we know is that cosmic rays, when they pass through the, 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 the head, particularly the optic nerve, they create flashes of light, what we perceive as flashes of light. And that the, you know, these people wouldn't have been able to understand this initially, but I think that eventually they would have worked out that they only occur when Cygnus was in view and that, you know, when it was overhead, they would become even stronger and they would have started to make this connection both with the Milky Way and the stars of Cygnus, so, you know, connecting it with some kind of innovation, some kind of effect upon their own evolution, maybe. And they would have started to see in it as a point of creation. And all of this would have come together, I would say, at least 100,000 years ago. I think that it probably was fully codified at the time of the last ice age, possibly about 16,000 years ago, oh, sorry, 16,000 BC, when the stars of Cygnus were last seen as uh, pole stars. Uh, and I think that, that these are some of the reasons why Cygnus would have been so important. But the swan itself was significant because it was an incredibly powerful bird. It was watched going north and south on its migrations every year. Um, and it was seen to be the perfect vehicle for the shaman to be able to utilise um, its paraphernalia, its bones, to make that connection with the spirit of the bird to carry it from this world into the afterlife. Free Dreamlanders, as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And I'm so sorry to see you go. But uh, goodbye, and we will see you next week. Greg Little will be with us to talk about this book again in a completely new way, because it's two books, really. Uh, 
tell us a little bit before we go about what Greg's role in it is so we can know what we might expect next week. Yeah, Greg's role is more focused on North American um, First Peoples and their beliefs in not just the idea of um, sky beings, you know, beings that were important uh, to their rituals, their beliefs. But what he shows is that communication with these entities, which, you know, John Keel, for instance, referred to as ultra terrestrials, was absolutely essential for their future destiny and that they would conduct rituals that would last days, if not weeks, to essentially make sure that their communication with these um, these intelligences continued. And we're not just talking about mysterious lights. We're talking about actual, you know, little people or beings that yes. would be encountered by them. And, you know, Conjured. there are different accounts. Of I, have, I have had the great privilege of being at a, um, a, a Native American approach an extremely private ritual in which such conjuring took took place. I saw it, and it is real. It's very real. Only, unfortunately, you're being an outsider like I am. In fact, everyone involved is absolutely sworn to secrecy. And this is not because there's anything for us to hide, but because this other presence does not want itself to become part of the public uh, dialogue except in ways that it itself directs. And this gets way back to the whole, or way deep to the whole reasons for UFO secrecy and and, uh, the secrecy that surrounds the close encounter experience, which is a modern manifestation of everything we've been talking about, in my opinion. And it controls this. Now, in the third half hour, we are going to get into just what does that mean? What are those stars? What are the emanations from those stars that made someone like Michael Persinger think that they had an effect here on Earth? And can we work with that in some way? Can we integrate that energy into our own lives? Can we become, can we have the experiences that Native Americans are having in the private, on the privacy of their reservations in extremely secret ceremonies? Why can't we Westerners do it too? The answer is we can. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking to Andrew Collins, Origins of the Gods, written with Greg Little, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. Uh, is there a website we can go to, Andrew? Yes, yeah, um, andrewcollins.com, oh, as it sounds. Um, everything is on there, my social media links, um, tours that we're doing to places like uh, Turkey, Egypt, uh, and obviously any events that I've got coming up, basically. I'm in America in... Uh, September in Colorado, speaking to a Gaia event at Boulder. Uh, if you want to come along, all details online. Um, and yeah, that's it really. Um, obviously the research continues. 
Um, and with every book that I write, you know, it's the next piece of the jigsaw in all honesty. I mean, like you, I just want to try and find the truth. And I think we're getting nearer to some of those facts today. Thank you, Free Dreamlanders subscribers. We'll keep on keeping on. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>